and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Really excited to chat today with Jake Sherman of Politico. Uh, Jake is a congressional reporter, and Jake's going to share his story with us today. Um, But one of the cool things about Jake is uh, he's a sports fan. I think that will come across in our conversation. But he really thinks about his job in a very similar way to a lot of athletes. Uh, He's competitive. He wants to be the first one there to get a story. He cares about getting the story first. He also cares about reporting on interesting concepts and interesting themes and stories and ideas. Jake is just somebody who's very intentional with how he goes about his job on a daily basis. And he is a worker. He is somebody who does not shy away from hard work. He will talk about hard work in our conversation today. And he's somebody who just puts the work in. He's a man of action. He's somebody who is constantly trying to evolve, get better, but he also knows he's pretty damn good at what he does and has figured out what he needs to do to be successful in the career that he is in. He's also branched off and done some TV, some podcasting, so he's not just a writer, um, but certainly he has a passion for reporting stories. He's also going to talk about his upcoming book uh, that's scheduled to come out in 2019. Uh, So he's certainly a writer and he'll get into how he has improved his writing over the years and tried to evolve as a journalist in addition to being a reporter. Uh, Jake is somebody who has had a lot of success pretty quickly uh, and is someone who's really respected on Capitol Hill uh, as, you know, finding the honest truth and uncovering the truth uh, in Congress in a place that really impacts not just the U.S., but the entire world. Uh, He's somebody who values relationships and cultivating relationships on the Hill and beyond. And the way we got connected was from a mutual friend, Dan Constant. Uh, Dan, if you're listening to this, thank you for connecting us. And I just know you will enjoy the conversation with Jake. And if you do enjoy the conversation, please help us out. Please uh, pass along to a friend, a family member, post it on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you could like the podcast, on iTunes and, and hopefully subscribe so you can listen to a few of our other shows. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Um, but without further ado, I'd like to present to you Jake Sherman. Jake, thanks for uh, traveling all the way to Bethesda, Maryland. All the way up Wisconsin Avenue. <laughs> it's a hard trek. Uh, a lot of people are scared to do it. So I'm, mm. I'm happy you can make it to the office and, and 
record this with me. And uh, what I'd love to do is just start, get to know you. I don't really know your background. I don't really know your story. So give me an idea of what life was like for you as a kid, your upbringing, family, all that good stuff. Sure. So I grew up in Connecticut, uh, outside New York City. I have a brother and a sister. I'm the oldest of three. Um, what is pertinent to this story? Well, uh, how old are your How old are your brother and sister? My, how much I'm 31. Um, I'll be 32 in December. My brother is three years younger than me, so he's 28. My sister is nine years younger than me. Okay, so let's start there. So a big gap between you and your sister. Yeah. So I'm assuming she's like graduating college. Or... She no, she graduated a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, I think two years ago now, if my memory serves me well. And she lives in New York, and she is in uh, public relations. My brother. All three of us went to school here. At G- my, me and my sister went to GW. My brother went to Georgetown. And my brother... So your brother's the smart one. He's the smart one, right, exactly. <laughs> well, I work with GW. I probably shouldn't say yeah. that. <laughs> GW's a great school. Uh, and I'm on the board of the athletic department. So yeah, I, they're I, all I'm, genius athletes. Yeah, uh, no, I, I will actually interrupt you. The athletes that I work with at GW are just incredible. And are I, they? I, I, like, I will be there on Sunday and Monday, and they're doing like a kickoff, and... Um, the student athletes there are just they, you know what you get at GW um, and then we'll find out more about your story the kids are smart but they're not necessarily full of themselves that's smart. probably right I think that's right uh, and they're generally good kids I mean there was with some exceptions but uh, the student I probably shouldn't say that either but the student <laughs> athletes are uh, they're curious people, I find. Anyway, back to my, yeah, my story. Yeah, back to you. We don't need to uh, yeah. So my brother went to um, Georgetown and then went to Oxford. Uh, Real dummy. So yeah, right. Liv- <laughs> he lived in the Middle East for a while. Now he's back in D.C. teaching at Roosevelt High School. Wow. Yeah. Those that don't know. All right, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, interesting school. Uh, actually a pretty good basketball program. And he's a good basketball player, my brother. So he, he uh, I wonder what. He he just started a couple days ago, so um, I know he'd like to coach. But well, uh, Delonte West went there. Did he? Yeah, Eddie Badson, who played in the NBA. The reason I know this is because I work with a high school basketball team out in Fairfax, Paul the Sixth. Yep. And oh, and that's one of the best teams in the country, right? Yeah, they're pretty legit, and their head coach started at Roosevelt. Is that right? So he tells me stories about Roosevelt all the time. Yeah. So my brother's teaching AP U.S. history. DC history and Middle Eastern studies. So he's got his plate full, uh, I imagine. And um, we had a, like a relatively normal upbringing. My, my parents, uh, my dad worked a lot. Uh, he's in finance. And my mom worked on and off. And she actually, when we all left the house, uh, started teaching preschool, which is, she probably couldn't do that when we were in the house because that's insane. God uh, bless her. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I was never much of a student. I kind of didn't like school. Uh, I never found my calling in, in in education the way my brother did. Uh, I mean, listen, I went to college. I graduated. Uh, I went to grad school at Columbia. I graduated from that. Um, but I didn't like my what drove me. Uh, and I guess I'm skipping ahead a little bit. But what drove me was like actual work. Um, mm. I was the editor of my college paper, GW. Um, I always was involved in something that wasn't school. Um, and I just like, much like my dad did not care for schooling. Like I, I, I liked working so much more. What was the first job you had? So I interned every summer in college. Um, I always wanted to be a reporter, which is what I am. So I'm glad I decided that early, I guess. When you say always, what age do you remember wanting to do that? 
as far back as I can remember. Like, do you have is there footage of you trying to record yeah. people? Yeah, like trying to like be a TV person and then like running a newspaper, like trying to you know all the sh- stuff that people assume. But let me jump in a little bit because so I've had people on here uh, that are TV sports personalities and then writers, and it's interesting with the age, uh, sort of the age range. Uh, some of them talk about. TV wasn't even, like, a thing back then. Like, the idea that you'd go into sports for TV, it wasn't really a thing. And so, like, I interviewed this guy, Howard Beck, who is a... Yeah, I know, big, yeah, I know who Howard Beck is. Yeah, yeah big-time basketball writer. And he yep. said, for me, it was the newspaper. And that's what I wanted to be, as a newspaper writer. I always wanted to be a newspaper reporter from every, the moment I could remember. Um, but I have, I have a, like, a strange route into political journalism. I... I worked when I was in high school. I worked nights at my local paper at the Stanford Advocate in Connecticut, which is a mid-size, uh, mid, small major daily in Southern Connecticut. And then I came to GW, and the first thing I did was go to the newspaper. And I always like kind of liked politics, but I was on the sports desk at the Advocate. I um, always wanted to be a sports writer. I. I was not a great athlete. I was fine. I played basketball. My dad was my dad and brother are really good athletes. Uh, I played golf in in high school. I was like m- very middle of the road. Um, but I always wanted to be a sports writer for reasons that I don't even really know. I, I think sports are interesting. I think people they're it's about people, right? It's about people and and performance and how people get good and just there, there's every element in sports journalism. I'm just curious, though, why was TV not the draw for you? I don't know. It's kind of vapid. I shouldn't say that since I'm on TV, like, every day now. (laughs) Or radio, for that matter. Like, what was it about writing that that drew you in? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, You got to tell the story. Uh, You kind of control the elements, I guess, is a good way to think of it. But then, anyway, I got to college. I covered sports for the GW Hatchet. And I tried to get internships in sports journalism, and it just didn't work. Like, I got an in- I interned on the Metro desk of the Journal News, which is a big paper in Westchester County. Next summer, I was at the Star Tribune in Min- uh, the Minneapolis paper here in D.C. The next summer, I was at Newsweek. Uh, and then I went to Columbia, did my – actually did my master's – we had to do a master's project at Columbia, which was like a big 10,000 – word story and i did it on fordham's basketball team Hmm. which was very very interesting it was kind of the this is probably getting too much in the weeds but it was kind of the push and pull between a good academic institution and a good basketball institution and how fordham was unwilling to sacrifice the former for the latter yeah there's a huge people don't realize this in college sports the idea of do you want to be good or do you want to be great that's right and like the notion of like we want good people and as long as they're good people, students, this, that, and the other, work good. Right. Um, and there are certainly athletic departments where that is the case. Like, we are not willing to sacrifice the good academics, the good human uh, for greatness. Um, and then you have other ones that are going to say, we. it's all about winning and losing. It's all about greatness. And if you're not great, you're not going to survive here. And then there are others that maybe are a combination of both. That's probably right. And yeah. and, and it was a very compelling story. Um but then I got done with that, and I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do with my life? So Fordham was not willing to compromise academics, on the academic yeah. side for the basketball program. And actually, the coach of Fordham at the time was a guy named Derek Wittenberg, who was the guy on the, yeah, the 1980, God, what year is that, 85? I don't know. 84? No, right. maybe, it might have even been in the early 80s. Uh, I'm sure someone who listens to this will correct me or will <laughs> do something. Uh, so... Uh, 
and he was the guy who threw up the shot that someone that Lorenzo Charles put in to win the NCAA championship. Right? Yeah. The reason I know is because there's been 30 for 30s on yes, it. Yes, 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 And I see his face, and I see them hanging around the table and talking about it. So. Yeah, so he was a cop. We're, we're sounding super young, by the way. There's going to be people that listen to this and be like, gosh, yeah. these guys don't know the greatest play in college basketball. He history. calls it a pass. He doesn't call <laughs> the, it a missed shot. Right, uh, but he was the coach, and he was a super fascinating guy, and I was fascinated by college basketball. For reasons again that are not entirely clear, but they're just very good stories. There's there's a camaraderie in college basketball that I find fascinating between the refs and the coaches, the athletic directors and the coaches. Very interesting community, and I find myself like more interested in communities like that professionally. Um, so I came back down here for the Wall Street Journal to cover politics because again I couldn't get a job in sports. Um, and then at that point I. Uh, was at the Wall Street Journal, just got bought by Rupert Murdoch. So it was kind of in a transitional period, which it's still in, in many ways. Uh, this was 2009. And um, I was going to stay there. They weren't sure what to do with me. They wanted me to keep staying on as an intern. It was like October. And my father was like, dude, like, get on with your life. You need to you need to get a job and like figure out what you're going to do. Just get comfortable, get an apartment. So I had an offer from the Minneapolis Star Tribune to move to Minnesota to cover state politics, state government. And then I had another opportunity to go to Politico, which at that time was like a 50-person news organization in 2009. The rest of the journalism industry was going down the toilet. And Politico had some, like, grit to it. Like, it was just like a place where you could work hard. And I, as a 20-whatever, I was 25, three years old, I guess. Yeah, 23 years old at the time. Um, I could, like do real things and cover Congress. And I always thought about it. Like my goal was to cover Congress at that point, to be a political reporter. And, uh, I was like, if I want to do that, I had some assistance and people were giving me advice at that point. If I wanted to do that, why would I leave and go to Minnesota? If my ultimate goal is to come back. Um, so the star tribune offered me $32,000 and Politico offered me $30,000. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'll go with the $30,000 in a more expensive city. Right. I was going to say in DC versus Minneapolis. Right. So, um, I did that and I have been covering basically house Republicans since then. So they were in the minority. Obama just won the presidency. It was like, a. uh, I couldn't screw up because no one cared about Republicans at that point. A year later, I was covering John Boehner, who ended up being the Speaker of the House, and I kind of rode that wave until now. And now I I um, write Playbook, which is the flagship morning newsletter for Politico, which is uh, kind of the, the centerpiece of Politico's now 500-person newsroom with six newsrooms in the U.S., one in, Bar- in Brussels, Barcelona, I wish, one in Brussels and one in London. So we're now a, a, a huge... Um, uh, global news organization. You use the word grit. Uh, is that still there? Is that still part of the culture? It's an interesting question. So, I mean, listen, Politico was a startup in 2009, and it is part of the culture still. But it's difficult to replicate in any company like that feeling when, like, you are just it's you against the world. It's yeah. like you, it's like the New York. It's like you, like you were the guys, the small guys who are punching the New York Times in the nose every day and like hitting them when they were down and loving it and loving it. Yeah. It's funny because now all those people that I was doing that with, not all of them, a lot of them are now at the New York Times. And they've kind of hired almost everybody from Politico. Um, The reason I asked that, so uh, there's a book out called Grit. Angela Duckworth is a professor who studies grit. She had a great TED Talk 
that went viral. Uh, so grit has become this buzzword. But she talks about sports a lot mm-hmm. as she she went to the Seahawks, spent time with Pete Carroll. She spent time with Brad Stevens, mm-hmm. the Boston Celtics. But one of the best examples she gives for grit is Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. And I think about Steph Curry as, you know, this underdog story. You know, his dad's alma mater, Virginia Tech, didn't offer him a scholarship and said he could walk on at Virginia Tech. Um, even though his dad was a legend at Virginia Tech, he says, no, I'll take the scholarship to go uh, go to Davidson. Right. He goes to Davidson. He has, you know, an amazing career there, puts them on the map. But then he still gets passed over by, I think, seven teams through the NBA draft. Uh, he's the eighth pick. And... Uh, but he's still seen as like this baby-faced, you know, kind of lanky small guy. Somewhat, even though he's six foot three and can dunk, like it's not like he's not an athlete. But um, he's still gritty, right? Like he's still um, is fighting. He's still he still works hard. He's still yeah. He's not complacent, right? Uh, just because he's an MVP and just because he's considered one of the top three best players in the in the world, one, one championships, right? Yeah. So I think that grit often will sustain itself. Um, but I think as we have more success, it's it's instinctual because we go toward the path of least resistance to become more complacent. But uh, there are super Kobe Kobe Bryant's another example. Like he didn't lose his grit. Tom Brady hasn't lost his grit now that he's successful. Uh, so that grit, which she defines as passion and perseverance for long term goals, um, is something that sc- I literally was uh, looking at a tweet earlier that. You know, schools are talking about how do we instill grit in our kids, which is kind of a little bit of a dangerous conversation. I don't think – I think you're – and we always said this at Politico and it got us in some trouble for some time. But either you're born for it or you're not. Mm. Either it's a place for you or it's not. And for a long time that got us in trouble. And it, I'm sure they don't go by that anymore. But like I don't know. I feel like um, – I feel like what drives me is something that could never be – I could never instill in anybody else. Like, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, I feel like what, what – dri- like, I'm in the news-breaking business, right? Yeah, what does drive you? I'm beating the competition, and okay. it's an everyday check-in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's no day where I'm like, ah, today is not the day I need to beat the competition. But it's weird. I'm writing a book now um, that's going to come out in 2019 about uh, Congress in the era of Donald Trump, which is like a totally different – orientation of my mind right because i'm reporting right now on something that's not going to see the light of day until 2019 so i know all this stuff that people tell me under certain restrictions right think i can't use it until it appears in the book and that's tough right because like i'm not and luckily a lot of the stuff hasn't gotten out that's partially because of the media climate and people are just chasing after shiny objects but that's tough right because I, you're wired to Deliver yeah. it to get the dopamine effect of I won. Totally. And like everyone says when you're when you're a reporter, you um you want to tell people something first, right? And the inability for me to tell to know that I'm gonna be able to tell them something first is 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 tough. Yeah. But you are also, you know, you're you're practicing the ability to hold off getting that dopamine, which is also where discipline comes from, it's where hard work lies is the ability to push off success for future success, right? right. Like like I'm not gonna eat that cheeseburger now because it's gonna I'm gonna look better in the long run, uh, which is also linked to success. You mentioned wanting to beat the competition. Um, 
there's cool research around this notion of internal and external motivation, right? So intrinsic motivation or internal motivation is the notion I want to do the best I can so that I feel fulfilled. Extrinsic or external motivation is this notion of um, I want to be better than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And what I find, and I just study this stuff nonstop, is that truly great performers are high on both of those. I think that's right. Yeah. Because I'm, I run marathons too, or I did for years. I don't anymore because my knees are shot, but I would if I could. Uh, and that I didn't care about beating anybody else in that. <laughs> I just cared about beating my own time. I've only done two marathons. I've done probably four or five. Give or, I don't want to be like Paul Ryan and say something, but I've run a, num- a number of half marathons, maybe anywhere between three and five, I'd say three and six, uh, and a bunch of 10-mile races. And those are all like just yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's I interesting because marathon running is about delaying gratification, right? It's about yeah, that. but it's not though because right. you're always training and you're mm-hmm. always. It's also like a check in um, with yourself um, every single time you go out there, and like going out for a twenty mile run or a sixteen mile run. You know, it it's it's delayed gratification, but daily, if that makes sense. Because yeah. um, you're still getting the growth and the improvement and the notion of right. going a little further right. and a little bit better. Right. That's right. Um, but it's, it's interesting because we can use the analogy of for your book, it is a bit of a marathon. Oh, it's more than a marathon. It's a it's a it's an endurance race. And you're used to being a sprinter. Right. Right. I'm used to. And, and now uh it's manifesting itself in several parts of my life now. I feel like I'm really on the couch, but like it's, uh, it is because I now run playbook is a huge part of the Politico business. It's a, a a very lucrative part of Politico's business. And it's a daily newsletter, which we grew into a twice daily newsletter, a podcast and a series of live events, uh, where we do newsmaker events. Um, and I used to go in in the morning to the Capitol and, figure out what the story is. And then from like two to six or three to six or four to six, I'd write it. And then I'd file it and it would be online and I'd do stuff. I'd do stories throughout the day. And now it's like between the book, which is like a marathon and, and trying to develop new products within a company. Um, I can't just go in at seven o'clock in the morning and say, I want to do this. And then at the end of the day, I have that done. Yeah. And me and my writing partner, uh, Anna Palmer, who I'm doing the book with and I do almost everything with, um, that's tough, right? We're, we're daily punch you in the nose reporters. So it's a tough, it's a tough nut to crack, but it's similar to an athlete who has to delay gratification in some sense in the, te- in the sense of like, I need to work my ass off in the weight room, or I need to eat a certain way, or I need to work on a skill. Um, and I'm, this may be hard now, but I'm going to get to the top of the mountain in the future and it's going to be worth it. Um, but then they also have this notion of instant gratification of like, you know, give me the ball. I want to, I want to score right now. And I'm fearless in that way. So one of the things I'm fascinated by is the mindset for preparation versus the mindset for performance. Like what is the mindset that we need to prepare and to learn and to grow? And then what is the mindset we need to perform and to execute? And for you, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective, um, as a journalist, as a reporter, um, you know, you have to gather the information, be open-minded, ask great questions. You know, there's an element that you have to be curious. You can't know everything. And then when it's time to execute, I would imagine that's when it's like, you know what? I've got everything I need. Now it's time to go. Walk me through that because I, I might be wrong about how I think about that. I'll take an even more global view, which this is a little bit kind of tangential to what you were saying. 
When I was the Wall Street Journal, uh, I worked with a guy named Brody Mullins, who's a very good reporter, uh, who now does like a couple stories a year. So he has a different, he's in the marathon business, not the sprinting business. But that being said, he told me once, I don't remember if I asked him or I was kind of looking, this was in the period when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And he's like, listen, you need to become indispensable in one thing. I don't care what that thing is. If you know telecom policy the best, be indispensable in that and make it that your company can't fire you because you're the only guy who knows that. You're the only guy who understands that. You're the only guy who understands how that works. I've tried to do that. Like I, That's how I live my life. I lived, the, and less so now, um, but I live like for, I'd say from 2009 to 2011, I lived my life with a daily fear of getting fired because mm. that just was what drove me. Like I just, I did Every, I was just a machine, like wore my just pounded through every wall, tried to figure out every angle. Like I, the, but I live my life in extremes. So like, one I used to, and I don't anymore because I work from four a.m. to seven a.m. at home. Um, I used to show up at the Capitol at like seven forty, seven thirty, and someone asked me from a competitive a competitor once, like, "Why are you up here so early?" I'm like, because whatever I'm doing now is going to be more more than you're doing, right? I'm going to be doing something that you're not doing when you're at home showering. So if I have to get up at like five and shower and work out and get to the hill um, by 7.30, then fine. Then like that's what I have to do. That's what it takes. There's two things there that we have to talk about. Mm-hmm. Number one, that mindset is exactly what Kobe Bryant's mindset is. that right? Was. Yeah, there was just a cool video of Jay Williams. Mm-hmm. And Jay Williams tells the story that – he is playing the Lakers. He's a rookie with the Bulls, and he um, gets to the gym super early. Let's say it's a seven o'clock game. He gets there at like one o'clock, and he's getting up shots. And Kobe's there, getting up shots. And Jay's like, "What's Kobe doing here so early?" And that was it. They play in the game. Kobe drops forty on him. And after the game, Jay goes, "Kobe, like, why? Why were you there so early?" And Kobe looks at him. He goes. Because I knew you were. <laughs> yeah, I know no one else is going to be. That's my that's my thing. Um, but he knew. He's like, I saw you there, and I wanted you to know that, I that was... I'm always going to be here. Yeah. Like, you're not going to outwork me. And so Kobe, like Michael Jordan, and I've talked to people who know these people, um, they they all have this internal motivation to be the best they can be. Uh, but, like, Michael Jordan, his whole thing was adding logs to the fire. So he has this internal fire burning to be great, but then he gets cut from his high school team. Log on the fire. Dean Smith tells him he can't defend. Log on the fire. He gets the NBA, they tell him he can't shoot. Log on the fire. Can't play baseball. All right, log on the fire. So, like, for you, it's very. it sounds very similar. It's like, I'm going to work hard because that's how I'm... I'll, that's how I've either been taught or I've been wired or whatever it is. That's that's a baseline thing. But then I'm going to use these little things here and there to just compete and make sure that that I'm going to that I'm going to be successful. That's right. And like the one way we think about it in journalism, I, with my close kind of group of friends and and colleagues who I work with, is like you just have to always be hitting singles. Like okay, so you do a small story. That's okay. Just keep pumping them out. Grind, grind, grind. And then you'll get a home run. You'll get a triple. You'll get a double. But you have to hit singles. And the people who are like, who think things are below them or yeah. you're above certain stories, like, no, that doesn't work. That's the other thing that I... And, and one, one yeah, other point. The it. one thing that I've... So I covered the House, which is 200... Now it's 247 Republicans. It's a lot of people. There, You can't go to them one day. You can't just go to a guy... 
um, and this is how all beat reporting works, but like you can't Congressman X, if he's in trouble, like he, or you need to know, even if he's not in trouble, if you need to know something from him, you just can't go up to him and be like, Oh, Hey, I'm so-and-so from, you know, this publication, like spill your guts to me. Like, no, that doesn't work. You need to be there every day and they need to see you. And like, so I, house Republicans meet in this, this room called HC five, which is the basement of the Capitol, big room. There's a big hallway leading up to it. And there's like a little door that's a step up door. And I used to just sit on the stoop in this, this hallway saying like, just when they had meetings, I'd be there. Like people would see me and they'd inevitably like stop and talk is like they're people, right? And like you have to treat these people like they're people, not like they're royalty. Like they have kids, they have families, they like football, they like basketball and like find the lowest common denominator and talk to them about it. And like at a certain point, like now when I'm writing a book, like I'm like, I need to, you need to trust me that I'm going to like take care of this information and I'm going to like be honest and like truth, truth worthy and trustworthy, truthworthy. Like, I could tell I wake up before I am. Uh, you, you need to just trust me here. And cause like we have this relationship that we've been cultivating over a decade or eight years, however long it's been. So it's that stuff that those like building blocks that help you get to the next level. And a lot of people now like just want to be like, you know, they just want to tweet snarky stuff and show up and be like, oh, you know, this is it's like, OK, well, you do you. And I think my thing will be better than yours. All right. Now there's three things. So the one I book- uh, oh, I, I should stop talking. The one I more bookmarked more. that you had mentioned earlier was a fear of failure. So 2009, 2011, you mm-hmm. said I was just driven. And if we go to any commencement speech all over the country, we will hear people say, don't fear failure. And I think it's a complete misnomer. It's idiotic. It's stupid, right? Like. Well, it's right in some sense, right? They, I know what they mean, right? They're saying, be fearless, go for it, go sit on the stoop, go do the work. Right. But what they're missing on that is like, no, you also have the sense of like not taking your job for granted. Like this could be gone tomorrow. And, I, and in sports, there's an element of paranoia that is actually healthy for performance. And I think it often gets glossed over when we talk about um, how do you get to be the best performer you have to have a healthy fear of failure so that you can be fearless. Right. Like, if you have a fear of failure, then you're going to be fearless. It's fearing failure in the preparation so you can be fearless in the performance. And I think that's just such an important piece. The other thing that we have to talk about is relationships. So you have developed relationships with people just by being present, just by being there, just by listening, just by asking questions, getting to know them. And you said people seeing each other as people, like humanizing them and realizing that they have a family and a life. And once I can cultivate the relationship, now I can do great work. And then the third thing that you uh, like really talk about is playing the long game and not the short game. Play, yeah, I got to play both kind of, right? You have to play the sprint, but you also have to do long, but not burning bridges for the short game at the expense of the long game, I would imagine. Well, we always say, and this is kind of off topic, but we always say when you take a shot, shoot to kill, right? Interesting. Like, uh, I did a series of stories a couple of years ago on Aaron Schock, who was a congressman from Illinois, and we got him. In, we got him. He resigned from Congress because of our reporting, and um, he's now indicted on 24 criminal counts because of our reporting. I only say that because you have to. I had a great relationship with him before, but when you take a shot at somebody, it needs to be the shot that's gonna that's gonna be. A, you can't be cheap on it. The other thing I'd say is. In a lot of ways, and I'll get in trouble for saying this, but a lot of ways, like, journalists are con men, right? We, um, but that's a little bit too harsh. But, like, we are, essentially, right? Like, we ask people for things they shouldn't give us, they tell us, and then we write it, and we tell everybody what they've told us. But that's kind of the bargain, right? Like, they understand what they're getting into. Why do you think they do it? Oh, there's so many reasons. 
reasons. There's yeah. so many reasons. Either the psychology of that's fascinating. That to advance their own agenda, to advance an agenda, to hit a competitor. I mean, I'm writing this book now, and I'm I'm involved in reporting on a a, a relationship that uh, is familiar to a lot of political people, but I, I won't get into it for obvious reasons. And it's like some relationships over time get so toxic, and people just act out of insanity. I mean, it, it's not insanity, but anyway. Um, people, my dad always told me people in, in politics want to get power, keep power and increase power. And increasingly much to my chagrin, I'll agree with my dad, but like, that's right. It's like people view it's a power game. And to think of it as anything else is just like so idiotic and so short-sighted. Like, yeah, people want to achieve good policy goals, but they also want to be, they want to be somebody. Uh, and that's what drives them. And that, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. How has your drive changed? So 2009, 2011, it's like, hey, I just need to get in here, do good work. I'm going to do whatever it takes, make make it happen. Um, you know, because I am making X dollars, and you know, I, I want to have a career. Uh, as your drive changed, as you've gotten uh, more established, does it shift? Um, how do you think about your job today compared to? How you thought about it eight years ago? It's a good question. Uh, no, it doesn't shift. Uh, it might take on different forms and diff- as I do different things. Um, I had a, a situation that I probably shouldn't talk about, but I will because whatever. This I almost, is like the third time he said, yeah, whatever. whatever. What's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I'm reporting on you. Yeah, so right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I almost left to cover sports for a big newspaper, uh, and I was under contract at Politico, um, a pretty ironclad contract and I made the case listen I want to leave this has been my dream for a long time I want to do this and they were like no you can't do it like you have a contract you're bound to us uh, and we'll like make sure you don't do it by taking legal action yeah. if you do which is tough but like at that point I'm like okay well like I'm really angry at my employer right I'm not I'm like a I felt like I was a slave right like I couldn't go and I put myself in that situation and they were rewarding me for it uh, within good reason but like at that point you got to be like okay like this is the this is the hand i was dealt i kind of dealt it to myself but like they dealt it to me too so now i need to like put this behind me and like do be the best i can at the job i i i I have and like things will fall in place and they did they have um but uh it's funny because i kind of got sick of covering house republicans and then i went to do playbook which is a big franchise and a big global franchise and it's just so much more all-encompassing and i say to myself now like i could totally go back to being a beat reporter hmm. uh i could totally go back to just going out and grinding every day that's who you are at your core is yeah that- it is it is as much as i you know i'm not like a big thinker you know i'm i'm never gonna write the book about the future of the republic you know what i mean it's just like like just know who you are, man. Like, don't try to pretend, pretend you're someone you're not. And does that go back to the advice that you were given, which is find something you are indispensable about, that you have a skill that, you know, is your skill the ability to report? Uh, what 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 is that unfair advantage or, or super skill or superpower? That, Probably that you're hard working. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good but reporter. But a lot of people work hard. No, but I, it was funny. It's funny that you mentioned that because um, – in journalism, you're like you're either a good reporter or a good writer, mm-hmm. or you're both. Um, for a long time, the rap on me at Politico, and they always like to assign. In the early days, when we were a startup, when we, like it was run by a bunch of, you know, kind of boorish guys, and some are still at the company, but like whatever. It was, 
we couldn't change the fact that it was started by two men, right? Like that, and that shaped the culture in a lot of ways. Um, and they've said that publicly, so I don't mind saying it publicly also. But like, it was always like Jake, great reporter, can't doesn't have writing chops. Like I made sure over many years that I had writing chops, and like I worked myself to the bone to make sure I could write, and like to make sure they couldn't say that anymore. And after a period of time, they like they just stopped saying it. And they were like, "You're right. You worked really hard at it." What were the things that you did? just read? I read. read good writing. Like I spent more time on Nexus reading good writing from reporters that I respected and that I knew were good writers. I mean, if I told you I probably read everything that a couple people have written, I wouldn't be lying. Interesting. Like everything. Like that five, six thousand stories. And now in my bag now as I write this book, like I'm trying to think about the book that I want to write and the books that I've enjoyed and I'm like rereading them and being like what is the pacing? What makes a book successful? What makes a book good? And um, uh, one person I've consulted a lot is a guy named Mark Leibovich, who you might or might not know, but you will know him soon. He wrote a book called This Town about D.C., which is about the culture of Washington. He's my favorite writer, one of them in the world. He writes for the New York Times Magazine out of D.C. He wrote a cover story in um, the New York Times Magazine about Tom Brady, which got a ton of attention. It was the story where he first talked about playing until he's like 90 or whatever he said. You know, that crazy, his crazy thing about his eating and his stretching and all yeah. this. And he has that crazy trainer who does all the off. So Mark was like the first person to really dive into that. Cool. Uh, and, his, and his first book was, was a huge success. Big New York Times bestseller. He's now writing a book about the NFL, about um, the culture of the NFL. And, the, and, and he, uh, he gave me really good advice about just um, – uh, about how to think about books and uh, they should be rich in incident hmm. which is uh, and, and that made me think like that's what I've built my career on just like being able to get good stuff and like I shouldn't try to reinvent myself I could still get good stuff and put it in a book um, I understand what he means by rich what do you think he means by incident so like uh, anecdotes mm. interactions like I'm not going to write a book that covers everything that Congress has done for from November 2016 until December 2018. I'm just not. Like, things happen, and I'm not going to be able to get them. And I need to be comfortable with that, and I've resigned myself to, to be comfortable with that. What I can do is I could write a great book about stuff that I find out that no one else is going to find out. Um, and uh, you got to just be comfortable. you got to know who you are and be comfortable with who you are be comfortable with what you could do, you know? But do you consider yourself to be a storyteller? Yeah, sometimes. Yes, I do. I do. Uh, more than I used to. Um more than I used to be. Uh, and I'm going to have to be. Uh, and I, when, I was, we, when I was meeting with publishers in New York, we, we didn't want to do this book. We had no, no... I always wanted to do this book, but I never wanted to do this book. Wait, what do you mean by that? I always wanted to do a book, and I always loved House Republic. Like, I love this story. I love this story so much. And it's a story that I've lived. It's like a... It's a story that... It sounds, it sounds self-centered. It's a story I'm a part of in a big way. And I always knew that there was a great book in it. And while everyone else worries about the White House and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, it's like, okay, whatever. It was like, they're so over. This is where the magic happens. This is so, they're so overexposed. Who cares yeah. about people that everyone knows? Right. Why do we care about that? Right. Everyone it's, knows them. It becomes uninteresting to you. Yeah, but there's also like a, sure, there's like also like a fear, not, not a fear of failure, but like so many people do it so well. You know right. what I mean? Like, why do I need to be involved in them? You know, right. like do my own thing. Um, so it was always the book that I knew I wanted to write. But then, like, I was like, eh, I have a lot on my plate. Um, 
And then we were approached and we said no. And then we said yes. And we wrote a proposal and we were like, maybe no one's going to like the proposal. And like, maybe that's great. Like, maybe we just won't do this and like we could have a life. And we went, took it to six publishers and we got six offers. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh man. And everyone's like, well, what is the arc of this book? Who are the main characters? And I was like, I don't know. I'll let you know in a year. You know what I mean? Like, you just got to trust yourself. And like, you know what it feels like? It feels like I'm like a car barreling down a highway with like no power steering. Yeah. But like, I don't know, I've been barreling down this highway before and I always seem to like end up at home without a scratch. You know what I mean? It's funny you say it. So a couple of things resonated with me. Number one is the idea of like reading everything from the people that you like reading mm-hmm. and diving into that to become a better writer. Like that's such an intentional act on your part to say, I'm going to get better at being a journalist or a writer by reading the best of the best. And none of us are original. Like, no. We're all a compilation of the environment, the people we surround totally. ourselves with, what we read, what we take in. So I love the idea that anyone's an original genius is just complete bullshit to me. Like, you are a compilation of everything, and there is no original idea because you're, unless you're isolated on an island with no interaction with anything, it's just impossible. Sure. So I think that that's such an intentional act. When I was in grad school, I didn't think I was a good listener. And I knew I was getting into a profession where listening yeah. mattered. Yeah. And every class, they would ask us to write down one thing that we want to get better at. And I would just write, become a better listener. And I just keep, write, keep writing it. And that's what I focused on. And by the end of grad school, we went in for like these feedback observational things. And one of the things they said was, yeah, Brian's like a really good listener. And I was like, see, cool. Robin, yeah. my wife. I'm like, see, I'm a good listener, even though she would argue against that my wife would argue against that with me too. yeah i think every husband yeah. will not win that no. um but when we need to be we have selective listening we're good at it um so that was the first thing like the intention that you had to say i'm gonna read these people because they're really good writers and if i read it i'm gonna digest it and therefore i'm gonna be able to maybe have the output of something in the same vein or in the same sort of light uh, i think is super cool and then the other thing that go ahead no, 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 no. Um, and then the other thing that's just interesting is I hear you sort of uh, talk and the notion of the publishers. I can hear you sort of wrestling with, oh, is this really a story? Is this really something that people are going to enjoy? And then you get to the point where you're like, F it. I'm just going to do what I think is interesting. Um, and I find, honestly, that's the same thing with this podcast. People are like, well, who are you trying to reach? Who is your demographic? Right. Who is your audience? I'm like, people that are interested in performance? And they're right. like, well, who's that? Is that a 50-year-old male? Is that a 30? I'm like, I don't know. Right. Uh, but I know I like talking to these people. I know I find them interesting. I know I learn from them. And the great thing about podcasts, no one's paying me to do this. Right. So I'm like, you know, I can kind of do whatever I want. There's but some th- freedom to that. It's the same thing with journalism. Like, people always said to me, um, well, that's not a story. I'm like, well... Unfortunately, you can't decide that. And if I think it is, it's my job to determine that. If it interests me, there's like a pretty good likelihood it'll interest somebody else, you know? And how? So I think that's something people struggle with because I find I'm an idea guy. So I come up with Mm -hmm. ideas all the time. A lot of them are stupid, I admit, but I have a list of ideas. I literally have a Microsoft Word document that says Brian's ideas. And people that know me know that I just come up with ideas all the time. But it is amazing to me how many people, when I tell them my idea, they tell me why that won't work. And very few people tell me, well, this is how it might work. Yeah, I, I encountered that. I've really encountered that a lot with stories. People say, 
well, this is just how it is. It's like, well, actually, the best stories are just how it is and how really screwed up that is. Like, uh, uh, we did a bunch of stories about, um, like, misspending in Congress. Like, and I had a colleague who always said to me, well, like, that's legal. So I'm like, yeah, great. So if it's legal, like, it's even worse, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, but people are always – it's funny because I was always told uh, no one buys books about Congress. Mm. No one will buy a book about it. Congress has a Bam. Congress has a thirteen percent approval rating. I said, "Well, that's, I I get it, but I just feel like I have no evidence that this will work. None, literally, no evidence that this book will be good. I, I I can't predict that, but I can tell you that I find it interesting, and people found House of Cards interesting, and that's about Congress. Yeah. And actually, they're good. St- no one's murdering each other yet, <laughs> but like, so not what? That, like, you not know, that you've uncovered right? Like, so." I guess you got you just have to trust your instincts. Like, it, don't make it more complicated than it is, right? Like, something seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, we're all human. Like, I don't know. People's tendency is a hundred percent to say why it won't work. I, I think there is um, there fear appraisal. This notion of like we are, uh, you know, we are trained to say this is you know why it won't work and. Um, maybe I'm naive in my optimism, but I, I, when I meet with people and they give me an idea, I'm always trying to come up with ways of how it will work. Right. And what's the, I always say this to my wife and she gets upset at me for it, but like what I always say to her is like, like no one's going to die. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And, and her point is always like, that doesn't mean I can't be upset about something or not believe in it. And like, you don't ever let me not believe. I'm like, you're right. That's fair. But like. I don't know, like... But when you have clarity around what's the worst that can happen, and you're okay with it, now we're talking, get away, now you can be fearless. Right. Right? We always talk about that with stories. We always, when we look at stories, and we looked at this with the book, when we looked at stories, we always said, when I was doing daily stories, you always said, what's the worst story you're going to get out of this, and what's the best story? Right? Like, the worst book I'm going to write is going to be, like, an inside look that has some anecdotes about... How Congress works, how like illuminating an institution that people are like, like generally familiar with, but like not really like obtusely familiar with, like they know Congress is in the Capitol and they know their congressman. The best book I'm going to write is going to be like a bloodbath about how people lose their jobs, people lose the majority, people screw up, people succeed, anything about how people succeed or screw up. And one of those two is going to happen. It's going to be a good story. It's drama. Can you connect the dots between politics and sports? Because it seems like you have, I mean, you threw out that you're involved mm-hmm. with GW Athletics. Um, and it's clear, you know, you almost took a job in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, connect those dots for someone who, I look, I, I'm from this area. Um, and I think when you're from this area and uh, you see politics everywhere, you can go one of two ways. You can either just shut the whole thing off. Where you can talk Be about immersed it all the time. It, yeah. uh, for me, I think the I kind of shut the faucet off uh, often, and my dad is like loves it, eats it, drinks it, sleeps it. Maybe not right now. It's not the healthiest eat, drink, and sleep for him. No, but or for anybody, or for anybody. Yeah. But like he he does, and it, it's it's actually kind of scary now because I see it impacting him. Uh, like it, I think it's impacting a lot of people. But can you connect dots for me as far as what are some similarities that exist in politics and sports? People wanting to win. Um, people having an, like, this is what strikes me about, 
and we've ri- I've written a little bit about this in the book or what will become the book. Like, think about it. People, either you're, like, really a regular dude who runs for office, gives up everything. If you're from California or if you're from the, anywhere, you're traveling four or five hours twice a week for $174,000. Uh, you have real restrictions on what you could do. It's, it's good money. It's not a lot of money. Um, and you're away from your family. And um, you're sacrificing a lot. Or you're a rich dude. And you're making $174,000. And, like, you're around people that, like, aren't rich, which is it is what it is. You're around people that are not like you, who don't have the experience that you do. Uh, it's just people sacrificing a lot to win. It's about people. Um it's about performing under pressure. Winning a campaign is like a marathon, right? It's like you're betting that you are – that you could convince 600,000 people or in the case if you're a senator from Texas, 20 million or whatever it is, million people, that you are the best of all of them to to represent them. That's crazy when you think about it. That is narciss- That is the height of narcissism. So the N-word is what I was – my head was spinning and I was thinking like – what I see is is such narcissism, and narcissism gets a bad rap, and people think of it as a negative term. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have some of that when you are on the stage, mm-hmm. you're done. I mean, uh, like Dean, right? I, I don't know Dean, but like when he was done was when he did that. Woo! And yeah. Does like because it's a lack of sort of I'm the man. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, when an athlete gets on the stage or an actor or a musician. Like, they need to be like, I'm the man. I mean, I saw Bruce Springsteen here this summer. Like, when Bruce gets, he's the freaking boss, right? right? Like, your nickname's the boss. Your nickname's the Black Mamba. <laughs> I'm going to stop and not go into politics. But, you know, there is a narcissism of, no, I am for the sure. right person for this job. And by the way, I find with Division One and professional athletes, they struggle with that more than the neuroticism to make sure that everything's right. Like, they often have this, like, perfectionism to make sure it's right. What they often struggle with is the narcissism of saying, I'm good, I know how to do this. Because that's tough. But you also have to do that as a journalist. I learned that early on. You need to write with confidence. Mm. And you're not going to be good until you can do that. So actually, that's why you kind of struggle a lot. Um, And you need to... uh, I'm trying to think of a non-crazy way to say it. Um, you need to kind of struggle and find your confidence and find that you know what you're talking about, right? Um, You need to find that until you could say like, and this goes back to the book, and it's maybe the next step in in my career. Like Mark Leibovich said to me, the great thing about a book is like, let's take any table, right? And there's a cell phone on it and two salt shakers. If you're writing a book, You need to have the confidence to say that cell phone is the single most important thing on that table, and I'm going to tell you why. And I am going to tell you why that cell phone matters more than anything else on this table. Or if you're in a room, that couch there is the most important thing in this room. And, like, maybe it's not. But, like, you're a writer and you're a reporter and you're writing a book. You need to be able to convince me that that is. And, like, I just wrote this scene, um, which I'll probably toss a million times before I actually – submit it or before it publishes but like uh, i don't want to give up too much but it was paul ryan on election day and uh it was a or around election day actually well it was not affirmatively it was not election day 
but it was around election day and he was at a, a campaign rally and he said something that was just so illuminating and like at the time I did not realize it was illuminating given a couple you know almost a year and like some thought like I could tell you why this quote is the most important quote in understanding Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's it's confidence. It's being able to say, um, "This is right. This is the most important thing in the world, and I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you why uh, this is the moment for Chuck Schumer. Yeah. I'm going to tell you why, um, you know, th- this is the biggest moment in someone's career." Um, because I could, I, I, I just, I'm, I've been around. I you know. know, yeah, yeah. But so for me, that that toggle is has been really crystal and crystallized. And this is the book I'm writing, which maybe I'll just have you write. And I'll, <laughs> no, that's okay. And I'll just verbalize it to you. It is this notion of we should be humble in preparation. So humble enough to say, no, it's not. That's not worded the right way. I could say that a different way. Let's make sure I have all the facts. Like, that takes humility mm-hmm. to then have the confidence to perform. Mm-hmm. Humble in preparation, confident in performing. Fear failure in preparation. Like, no, I'm, uh, this is not going to work. And then be fearless when we're performing. Be neurotic in preparation. Be narcissistic in performance. Uh, be a perfectionist in preparation, but be adaptable when it's time to perform. That's right. And I have a list of, like, 20 of these. Yet, we often just tell people... Be fearless. Be confident. No, there's some, well, there's something that you need. There's a step before being confident. Yeah, like, I, I know a guy in high school who's a really good. Um, he's a really good player. Uh, actually, I knew him from growing up. He used to have a shirt that says "Shoot until you're hot," and no, shoot until you're hot. When you're cold, shoot until you're hot. When you're hot, shoot until you're cold. Interesting. And um, like that's the kind of preparation that I think you need, right? Yeah. Like. That's I remember we, my dad. My dad was a good basketball player, and he always used to tell me he used to pl- be playing in the rain. He used to go out in the cold, and, and I think that shaped a lot of my experiences. Like my dad's work, work ethic, um, and there's ups and downs to it, right? Like the, you, you sacrifice a lot to be able to prepare like that, and that's what being in the hallways in, of Congress is. That is your practice. So when it comes to the big time, and you have to write a story, or you have to break a story. You were there. You know these guys. You could text so-and-so and and say, tell me this information. Love it. So here's what I'm going to do next. Uh, I want to do what I call preferences. Okay. So these are just quick hitters. Okay. Um, You have to pick one. So I put Uh you into this corner and... And I have to to perform. You have to perform. And I am a person of nuance. I don't like uh, saying that everything's black and white. Mm -hmm. I like blending. Mm -hmm. But I love this exercise because Mm -hmm. it's not that. And it's just fun and uh, it puts you in a corner. So... um, do you prefer preparation or performance? Performing. Do you prefer yes sir people or why people? That's a tough one. Why? I mean, journalists are always curious. But why was that tough for you then? I had to think about what it meant. Okay. <laughs> it's easier for like coaches when I ask them if they'd rather coach a yes sir. Yes sir, 100%, right? Or uh, why? No, a lot of them like why. Really? Um, yeah. And I would argue a lot of them would like a why in preparation and yes, sir, when they're performing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's all interesting. Uh, a system or autonomy? Uh, a system that I create in autonomy. Okay. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big person of, in, uh, uh, of routine. What are some routines that you do? Up early, eat very similar meals, um, very strict exercise regimen. Um, any meditation? Mm-hmm. How often? How long? I'd like to say every day, but not. But I try to do quick meditations. 
like I, five. Five minutes and under. Yeah. I could do 15 minutes, but I don't like to. And I, listen, I, I work myself to the bone. I mean, I, I go to like, there are times where I've gone to like LA and California or, and, and Vegas for like five or six hours and I get back on a plane and go home. So my body takes a toll, right? Like I, I, exhaustion is not an unfamiliar concept to me. So meditation helps me like go from a, a, you know, out of control to like, okay, things will be cool. You know what I mean? Yeah, because out of control exhaustion, not like I'm running around and killing people, but like, like, what do you do for, and we're going to come back to preferences, but what do you do for recovery? Because it sounds like sleep sometimes takes its, I don't do, I don't do enough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do enough. Exercise is recovery from, it really is recovery for me. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I have, I wouldn't be joking I, I haven't taken a day off, single day off, since uh, July eleventh, twenty sixteen. So more than a year. Not a, not a, including weekends. It's so weird. My nephew's birthday is July eleventh, and then I just talked to someone else who's July, who's July eleventh. So maybe there's something. About yeah, it's a, it's a day. The stars lining. So you you just work. Yeah. You, you just act and, and take action, uh, but then you try to be. Um, thoughtful or intentional with how you eat, how you exercise, um, uh, meditation, mm-hmm. those types of things. You try to self help, mm-hmm. self take self mm-hmm. care. Yeah. yeah, and I, I also like I like I didn't eat carbohydrates for like five years, and then now I've switched. And I I see a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I go to something called um, uh, why am I blanking on it now? Center for something medicine. Anyway, uh, it's basically a theory that your gut health is the most important thing. So, like, I now don't eat gluten, don't eat dairy, don't eat processed foods, no sugar. You said earlier you do things to the extreme. Yeah. So that's an example. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, cheat and win or lose while being honest? Uh, that's tough. It's tough for me. Ah, it depends how bad. Like, the, probably lose. Well, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. Uh, it depends how bad the cheating is. Um, in my personal life, lose and be honest, but in like I will win at any cost. So you are the first non-athlete to answer it that way. Athletes Say will the, often answer it that way. Cheat what? Cheat and win. Non-athletes typically they look at me like I've got like ten heads when I ask the question. Yeah, but so the. Um, how you're thinking about it. Yeah, so, like, my whole job is to win. Yeah. I mean, listen. So is an athlete. Yes, that's true. But um, I, I don't, my whole job is based on honesty and being able to, like, my people tell me information, then they see it in print. So, right. like, I have. If your credibility is gone. Then I got nothing. You're screwed. So, but, like, cheating, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, yeah. eavesdropping on a meeting from outside a door where I'm not actually cheating? I'm not doing anything wrong. Right. That, it's a public place. I'm not – if they're talking too loud, that's their problem. Is that cheating? I don't know. Yeah, that's what an athlete would say. Getting someone to leak me documents. They're not allowed to leak it. I'm not leaking. I'm not stealing it. I'm getting information from somebody. They're screwing up. They're screwing up. Do I convince people to do things that they shouldn't do? Yes, yeah. all the time, every day. And an athlete would say the same thing. They'd say, if I grab that person's jersey and the ref doesn't see it, then the ref – It's, the it's a little different, though. That is against the rules. I'm talking about things within within the rules. Fair enough. All right, then what about a moving screen where I'm just moving a little bit, but I have the angle. If there's – there's shades is, of gray. There's shades of gray in, yep. in everything. Um, but it's interesting because athletes 
struggle with that question more than non-athletes who usually they'll be like, no, I, I'm just going to be honest. And I wonder how often they're actually telling the truth, to yep. be honest. Uh, perfection or progression? Progression. Most valuable player or most improved player? Depends on the context. Probably if it's something I've been doing for a while, most valuable. If it's something that uh, I'm not like improvement toward being the most valuable, I guess the best. In 2009, how would you have answered that? Improvement. Yeah, so I think it, it Well, it depends. It depends on the context. Yeah. If I was the best 23-year-old reporter, then fine. The best newcomer, then great. But I, I want to be the most valuable in a global sense. Which goes back to sort of that idea of, like, add value, be irreplaceable. If you're most valuable, then you're good. Yeah. Uh, resume or eulogy? Hmm. They're not something like a neat construct. Um, I wish I came up with it, but I stole it from David Brooks. Uh, resume or eulogy? I haven't. Get, I don't even know where my resume is. So, um, how do you think about the question? Like existence or non-existence, right? Like eulogy is pretty, pretty dark thought. But like, yeah, I guess eulogy, right? Like. Uh, I want to be so successful that I don't need a resume. Hmm. You know what I mean? I don't need to – people know who you – and I'm not saying I'm at that level at all. I'm just saying I want to be at a place where, like, I uh, – people just know. What do you think of fame? Uh, I don't <laughs> – I don't. I mean uh, – You're around it so much. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think people are people. And you got to treat them like that or else they'll treat you in a weird way. But do you have any fear of fame? No. I mean, I go on TV all the time. People know who I am in my little world. Um, just makes you a bigger target. Makes you have to work even harder. I 100% do not want to be famous. I, I don't – yeah, that's fine. I mean, I, I want to – yeah, that's that's totally fine. I don't think of it. Yeah. I I don't – and I, and that's going to – this sounds terrible. I, I hope no one that I know is listening. But um, – If that's a, it's a byproduct. It's not a goal. Yeah. And I'm not saying for me, I, I, that's how I think of it. Yeah. It's interesting. That wasn't all my preferences, but I had to throw it in there. Okay. Uh, it's probably my own issue. Uh, <laughs> your generation or your parents' generation? Hmm. You know, and this is a, we, I don't want to, I know we're probably running out of time, so I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you're good. I don't want to go too long. Here. In podcast land, we yeah, have I know, I know, all I know. the time. I know. Um, I feel like the farther we get away from, like, the farther we get away from, like, the generation that really had to work for stuff, mm. the worse off we are. Interesting. You know what I mean? Like, um, people who came to this country with, like, a dollar in their pocket and became billionaires, like, that's a pretty cool deal. American uh, dream. Yeah. But also just, like, work hard, put your nose to the grindstone, and you'll be good. Um, so, you know... I guess my parents, but uh, mine too in some ways because, like, the world is advanced in a cool way and my world is advanced in a cool way. It seems like your parents instilled this blue-collar-ness in you even though your dad yeah, sure. in working in finance. There's a, there's a, there's a blue-collar-ness that you really value. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's just hard work. Yeah. Um, what are other values that they instilled in you? Honesty. Um, uh, 
heritage, I guess, if that's a value, or respective heritage would probably be the better um, parallel. Um, those are probably the big ones. Um, I think those are probably the big ones. Cool. I will go back to our preferences. Yeah. Evaluations or descriptions? Descriptions. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Both. <laughs> I have to do one, don't I? Uh, yeah. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Negative. Yeah, is that where, like, editors come? Is you think yeah. about it from an editor? Kind of, Not really, but, like, you don't need to be pat on the back too much, yeah. you know? You're good. <laughs> Culture or talent? Hmm. Do you mean, like, cultivated talent? I mean, what do you prefer, being around talent or being around a good culture? Talent, probably. Okay. Momentum or the moment? The moment. Pumped up or calmed down? Pumped up. Grit or grind? I think those are the same, kind of. Some people do. Um, you used the word grind earlier today. Yeah, grit and grind. You have to have grit to grind. I'll let you get away with it. Okay, cool. Liked or respected? Respected. Transformational leadership or transactional leadership? Transactional. Love winning or hate losing? Hate losing. It's so interesting because you talk about winning so much, but that was easy for you. You have to learn how to – you have to hate to lose to love to win. Love it. Risk-taking or rule-following? Rule-following. Now, this is a sports analogy, so I think you'll get it, though. A starter on a losing team or a towel waver on a winning team? Starter on a losing team. Balance or specific obsession? Specific obsession. (laughs) That was an easy one, but his whole face just sort of lit up. Um, Fear of failure or fearlessness? Fearlessness. Disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it. Head or gut? Hmm. Probably gut, but should be head. <laughs> you know? Good way to end. Yeah. So what I'd love to do, lastly, is just give you the floor, uh, give you the space. Uh, you talked about a lot of stuff you're up to, with playbook and uh, some other stuff, but where can people find you, um, either on social media, sure. website, uh, whatever you want to do? Sign up for playbook at politico.com slash playbook, something I say every morning when I record our podcast. Um I'm at Jake Sherman on Twitter, uh, politico.com. Uh, where else could you find me? Our book, which is going to be called A Hill to Die On, which is going to be out in March of 2019. Because um, I will will it to happen no matter what happens. Uh, and that's it. Awesome. Jake, uh, we don't know each other very well. We've interacted different times. Uh, we got connected from my buddy and your buddy, Dan Codston. So we'll give Dan a shout out. Yes, sir. And I think we're about to see him uh, in the next hour or so if, if he hasn't... Um, you know, abandoned us yet, and he may have. Um, just really appreciate you sharing. I had no idea where this was going to go, and I'm sure you didn't either. Um, it was fun. But it, it's amazing how smoothly it went, and it just reminds me that this stuff is uh, applicable to... In everyone. In yeah. everyone. Yeah, totally. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. But, like, it was always like, Jake, great reporter can't doesn't have writing chops like i made sure over many years that i had writing chops and like i worked myself to the bone to make sure i could write and like to make sure they couldn't say that anymore and after a period of time they like they just stopped saying it and they were like you're right you worked really hard at it what were the things that you did? just read i read good writing like i spent more time on nexus reading 
good writing from reporters that I respected and that I knew were good writers. I mean, if I told you I'd probably read everything that a couple people have written, I wouldn't be lying. Interesting. Like everything, like that. Five, six thousand stories. And now in my bag now as I write this book, like I'm trying to think about the book that I want to write and the books that I've enjoyed. And I'm like rereading them and being like, what is the pacing? What makes a book successful? What makes a book good? 